Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. I'm with Whitney Bryan, who covers vulnerable populations for Oklahoma Watch. As part of our series, A Mile in Another's Shoes, Whitney spoke to Mongo Allen about the tumultuous childhood that inspired him to help Oklahomans suffering from addiction and mental illness. Tell us, Whitney, who is Mongo Allen? Well, Mongo was born and raised here in Oklahoma, and he currently lives in Edmond. He's been working with people who are addicted um, or suffer from a mental illness for more than 20 years now. Uh, he actually, he's an interesting looking guy. He wears all black, uh, big, chunky skull rings on his fingers. Um, he said that, you know, his appearance was kind of inspired by an early job in his career teaching at an alternative school where he worked with gang affiliated kids and, you know, wearing any color was considered being affiliated with a gang. So he started wearing all black um, and just sort of stuck with his uh, stuck with that persona. How did you meet Mongo? Actually, he reached out to me. Um, he had found some of my previous reporting on mental health and addiction and um, kind of called and said, hey, I think we have a lot in common. Um, let's chat. And and we had coffee and he told me about a podcast that he has where he shares stories about people who suffer from addiction and trauma, uh, talked about the work he was doing. And he talked a lot about his dad who inspired him to go into the field. So you read about that. He was close to his dad. As an adult, he was, but their relationship was really rocky when Mongo was young. Uh, his dad was an alcoholic. Uh, he was very abusive to Mongo and his brothers when they were young. Uh, when Mongo was four, five, six years old, his dad would come home drunk on weekends, and he would make Mongo and his brother stand at attention next to their piano, kind of like soldiers, and sing. He would turn the radio on and make them stand there for hours while he played the piano. And he didn't even know how to play the piano, actually. He was just kind of banging on the keys, as Mongo described it. He said um, that if they tried to sit down or stop singing, that they would get hit. So it was a, a pretty traumatic childhood for him. It sounds like Mongo faced uh, a lot of trauma as a kid. How did he cope with that? He told me that art was his outlet um, when he was a young child and, and throughout the rest of his life, actually. He would color with crayons or draw as he got older, and he, he really kept that up through school and into college. He even taught art um, to some of those teens at the alternative school where he worked for a while. He told me that his dad even used to you know, break his crayons, tear up his pictures because he thought art was only for girls, but his mom kind of behind the scenes, always made sure he had plenty of art supplies so he could keep doing that. Well, did did things get any easier for him as he got older? 
They did. Um, Mongo's dad was in and out of rehab for a few years, and eventually, you know, it stuck. Um, and when he was in middle school, when Mongo was at uh, Delcrest Junior High, his dad kind of opened up to him about what had been behind all of that for all those years. Uh, he was a Vietnam veteran, and he was suffering from PTSD. He explained to Mongo that he was having nightmares about his friends being killed in front of him. Um, so on those nights, he would make his kids stand by the piano as an attempt to avoid going to sleep, um, to keep him awake. He was just trying to avoid those nightmares. And, you know, Mongo's dad also had a similar upbringing to Mongo. So, you know, Mongo said he kind of didn't know any better. That's how he was raised and and then how he adopted, you know, fatherhood. So that really helped Mongo to understand kind of what was happening to his dad. And, you know, then he really started thinking about um, changing, uh, helping other people um, recover in similar ways. Well, those, uh, as you alluded to, those experiences in his childhood helped Mongo uh, go on to help other people, uh, people like his dad. What kind of work does Mongo do? Mongo started out as an art teacher at Seaworth Academy. That's the alternative school that I mentioned in Oklahoma City. It's shut down now. Um, years ago, it closed. But when he started there, he taught kids who were uh, mostly wrapped up in the criminal justice system or affiliated with gangs being abused. Uh, he said he even taught a few kids who had murder charges pending. Um, so it was a, a rough crowd, as he described it. And he said, you know, that's really where he fell in love with helping people to recover and to heal. He went on to work in a children's mental health wing at a, a private hospital and then with some of the state's most violent and severely ill patients at Griffin Memorial Hospital. Now he teaches recovery at Oakwood Springs Behavioral Health Hospital in the city. And what about Bongo's dad? What, what became of him? Mongo's dad eventually uh, recovered from his addiction and became a minister, and he even ended up starting his own church when Mongo was in college. Uh, the two of them became very, very close, uh, but Mongo's dad, Morris, died about 10 years ago after a long illness. Uh, Mongo said that his dad showed him that everyone deserves the chance to recover, and he's really trying to, uh, you know, live his his dad's legacy through the work that he's doing. Hey, well, thanks, Whitney. If you'd like to read uh, Whitney's story about Mongo Allen, you can find that on our website, along with all of Whitney's other work about vulnerable populations. You'll find that at oklahomawatch.org. I'm with reporter Paul Monies, who's been tracking all the state's spending under the Federal American Rescue Plan Act. The state legislature met in a special session for two days last week and approved hundreds of millions in spending on a variety of projects. Paul, what made up the largest category of spending? Yeah, so the, the largest ones were by far broadband, which was more than $550 million, and then various water and sewer infrastructure projects across the state, which is also about more than $5 million, $500 million. There's also quite a big uh, spend on categories in, in health care and mental health. Uh, and if you remember, the state had a total of $1.87 billion to spend under the federal relief money. Do we know all the recipients of that money yet? 
We do not, no. And especially on the broadband and water projects, those are actually going through uh, two different state agencies. They've set up a new state broadband office that will make grants for the the broadband programs uh, across the state. And so we don't know the final recipients for those yet. And the same is true for uh, the Oklahoma Water Resources Board, which is in charge of a lot of the water grants and infrastructure grants on that side. Uh, That that also includes some tribal matching funds as well. you know, there weren't all winners on here. What uh, what did not make the list? Yeah, so a couple of things that didn't make the list were uh, the, the pandemic center, the the, the governor Stitt touted pandemic center in Stillwater. Um, that they applied for one hundred forty one million dollars to build out a campus there next to the relocated public health lab. That did not go through any of the the working groups or joint committee at all. So that's not one that's going to get. Uh, funded on that side of it anyway. And then there's a couple other projects that were asked for uh, some really big ticket broadband items by companies, you know, totaling a billion dollars or more. Those will not be going to one single company. We know that. Now, lawmakers have been vetting projects for more than a year, uh, but there was a bit of controversy that popped up at the last minute, right? That's right. Yeah. Um, a small group of lawmakers had called attention to one of uh, OU Children's Hospital's um, adolescent health programs for uh, transgendered youth, um, speci- specifically for some puberty blocking programs and um, some possible surgery above the waist that they do. It's a very small program. It's been around a number of years, but it attracted a lot of social media attention and has been the focus of a lot of uh, very conservative lawmakers. They had kind of uh, put some extra stipulations on one of the funding bills uh, that would forbid OU from funding those those types of treatments for um, for uh, those those particular segments of youth, uh, and so that kind of held up one of the bills for a while. The, the legislature ended up debating that program specifically for several hours last week, but eventually passed the funding bill with that stipulation. Oh, do you think lawmakers uh, are likely to put any more limits on? on gender-affirming care at hospitals that that get state money? Yes. In fact, that was one of the sticking points in the last week's discussions. Um, Some lawmakers thought that that uh, law didn't go far enough and they should ban the procedures statewide, not just at OU's health programs. And so that is sure to come up in the next legislative session when they start meeting again in February. uh, What's next in the approval process for the ARPA money? Well, the, the legislature approved probably about uh, 25, 30 bills last week have funds that, for ARPA projects. Uh, they are now on Governor Stitt's desk. He has until Wednesday of this week to act on those. Now, if you remember earlier this summer, the legislature sent uh, a package of bills under ARPA funds to the governor. Uh, he did not sign those, but just let them go into law without his signature. He has said in the past that uh, he's been somewhat wary of some spending under this uh, and has said that a lot of this is funding projects pushed by special interests. What has the governor said about the uh, the federal pandemic relief money? So, yeah, he's, he's not being super excited about it, but he has said that he will review all the projects that are before him um, and that he has been pushing instead inflation relief. The sticking point on that has been the Senate, which has decided to kind of take a whole uh, comprehensive look at tax reform overall, not just uh, Stitt's push for ending the state's share of grocery uh, sales taxes. Who is responsible for making sure that these ARPA-funded projects are successful? What's the, the follow-through? 
So the legislature has been pretty clear about its oversight role as these projects get funded and uh, put into place. Also, uh, they put some extra requirements last week on the state's uh, Office of Management Enterprise Services for extra reporting that includes weekly and quarterly reporting beyond what is required uh, by the federal U.S. Treasury that uh, is in charge of these funds to begin with. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. You can read all of Paul's reporting on the distribution of that $1.87 billion in federal uh, funding that has come to Oklahoma, along with uh, all of his other coverage of state government. You'll find it at oklahomawatch.org. Lionel Ramos covers race and equity for Oklahoma Watch, and he did a story about uh, the Republican Party's outreach to Hispanic voters in Oklahoma during a time when that demographic is the fastest growing in the state, yet only one county, Texas County, offers voter registration forms and ballots in Spanish. Lionel, what'd you find there? Yeah, so the important thing is that census data tells us there are at least 21,000 Oklahomans who face significant barriers to the ballot because they speak Spanish and not enough English to participate in the electoral process, according to a, a federal voting rights provision. Uh, these are voting age citizens I'm talking about, people who are old enough and eligible to vote and, and don't speak fluent English. Uh, the only place where folks have access to Spanish voting materials is, like you said, in Texas County. And it's important to say that racial and ethnic minorities are historically undercounted in the census, so the number is likely greater. Uh, and what else do we know? Is Texas County the only place uh, we're finding those voters? So it's not the only place where they exist. It's the only place where they have access to voting materials, right? So uh, the voters are spread out really across the state. Um, about a third of a third of the 21,000 live in Oklahoma County, actually. About 4,000 of them live in Tulsa County. And then there are some counties on the, the southwestern part of the state uh, that that have a pretty high concentration as well. Jackson, Tillman uh, are some of, some of the examples. So why can't those other counties' election boards translate and publish voting materials uh, in Spanish to make that more accessible? Yeah, so kind of going back to what I said earlier, there's a, a federal voting rights provision, uh, Section 203 of the Voting Rights Act, and basically it says that any jurisdiction, any political jurisdiction in the country that meets certain requirements is required to offer translated voting materials. Not just in Spanish, there are about 70 other languages. Um, Texas County is the only county in Oklahoma that meets those requirements, which are 5% of the voting age population or 10,000 individuals and uh, an illiteracy rate higher than the national average, which hovers around 1.3%. All 77 counties meet that illiteracy rate standard. It, now, uh, Oklahoma certainly isn't the only state with uh, uh, people who uh, do not speak English as their native language. What do other states do in this situation? Yeah, definitely not. So there are uh, three states that I know of that are required to provide those materials statewide, uh, those being Texas, Florida, and California, which have the highest uh, Hispanic populations in the country. Um, and then there's states like Kansas, which is required to only provide those materials in six counties, uh, but goes ahead and publishes a translated form on their Secretary of State website so that people who don't live in those counties can cross-reference and fill out their form and mail that into their their uh, county election boards. Uh, now, your story mentions that uh, Republicans 
are trying to capture that Hispanic vote. What's that look like? Yeah, so there are a few things happening on this front. Uh, the first, uh, and probably the one that people have seen the most, is that the governor put out an ad in Spanish. Uh, I, I've seen it on YouTube. Um, in which she addresses the Oklahoma Hispanic community directly, uh, calling the demographic important to the future of the state. He says that in Spanish. Uh, additionally, there are some Republican candidates who are translating their campaign pamphlets and pr promotional materials. Um, and then there's a Hispanic community center that the uh, Republican National Committee opened in the heart of Capitol Hill, a historically Hispanic and uh, Democratic um, area of Oklahoma City Southside, actually. Now, what would need to happen for there to be voting materials in Spanish throughout Oklahoma? Yeah, so that's a good question. So the important thing about the outreach that the Republicans are doing is that it's just that. It's outreach or, yeah, it's outreach, not access, right? Uh, so to answer your question, there are two ways that those materials could be provided in Oklahoma. The first uh, is that the Hispanic community is the fastest growing in the state. So... Over time, more and more counties will meet those thresholds that we mentioned earlier. Or uh, because of the state constitution making English the official language, uh, something that was decided in 2010 via state question, 75% of Oklahoma voters voted for that, uh, we would have to make another state question or a citizen-led petition to uh, reverse the, the language in the constitution, basically. The Oklahoma Constitution. Is there any support for that out there? Not that explicitly. Uh, I've spoken to some to some uh, legislators or uh, legislate legislator hopefuls, <laughs> and uh, there is support for uh, translated materials. Just what that looks like and how that's rolled out uh, is less clear. All right. Well, thanks, Lionel. You can read uh, all Lionel's work on race and equity, including his story about how Republicans are reaching out to the Hispanic community on our website, OklahomaWatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at OklahomaWatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening. Oklahoma Watch is a nonpartisan, nonprofit news organization. That means that we rely on readers and listeners like you to help fund the important work that Oklahoma Watch does throughout the state. We're in the middle of our spring fundraising campaign. If you enjoy the work we do, if you feel as though you benefit from it and the state of Oklahoma benefits from what we do, please take a moment to visit our website and make any contribution that you're comfortable with, $5 a month, $10 a month, whatever's comfortable for you will help keep this important work going. Visit our donations page at oklahomawatch.org.